0: Hello, folks. We're very excited to have Adam Kahane with us today. His new book, Facilitating Breakthrough, is a fantastic read if you're interested in creating the conditions for significant change to happen, to be someone who facilitates the depth of conversation and action that is required to tackle some of the major systemic challenges we're facing in our world. Anyway, let's get on with it.
1: Let's do it. Good to have you with us Adam um, and I will say Adam you I don't know if you know this but you coincide with my finding this kind of field in general the first art of hosting training right. I to, you were there in the the circle and um And I did, I mean, I did, I will admit, I left that training saying, well, you know, whatever these people are doing, that's kind of weird, but that's all right. (laughs) Uh, And you were part of that. But you also um, gave me a copy of your first book as I left. And it was wonderful. I read it on the plane ride home. And that was um, Solving Tough Problems. That was your first book, yeah? Yeah. You've got... Now, Right. So we've got several books out. And so we wanted to have you on to talk about your most recent book. Tim and I have both read it. I think Tim actually maybe listened to it. It's fantastic. And so we want to talk a little bit about what's in the book today. And maybe just having been your friend and colleague and um, learner from you for years, we'll probably have questions that are also outside of this book. But I actually wanted us to start with how you came to facilitation. I know you share this in the book. But some of our folks will know you and some of them won't. And I am just always struck as I read your writing, kind of like starting out, right, with maybe your undergraduate degree in physics, playing cello, doing these different things. And now you kind of work with world leaders on the toughest problems and how to work with them. And so I think it would be great. Some of our listeners are facilitators. Some of them are clients. And some of them are just folks who are interested in transformation. And so could you just give us like, you know, how did you come to facilitation? What was your own path?
2: Well, thanks for having me on and thanks for the question. As you say, my my first degree uh, was in physics at McGill in Montreal, which is where I'm from, and then I did a economics graduate degree at Berkeley. And the reason that's relevant is because uh, all of my... Um, academic training and my first jobs were about figuring out the right answer quickly by myself. Mm. Um, And so when I graduated from Berkeley, I entered the corporate world and I, after a while joined Shell, the oil company in London and I was hired for my expertise Um, and for being a smart guy. But when I got there, I was taught that the the role of the shell planners was not to make plans, but to facilitate the executives to make plans. So that was my first introduction to facilitation, although I think in retrospect, it was pretty rudimentary. And my job was to go around the world, try to figure out what was happening and contribute to writing scenarios about different possible futures for the company. And while I was at Shell in 1991, there were two academics in South Africa, Peter LaRue and Vincent Mapai at the left-leaning University of the Western Cape who wanted to make scenarios for South Africa. This was one year after Nelson Mandela Had been released from prison and three years before the first democratic election so right in the middle of the transition and they wanted to use the shell scenario methodology and they asked could shell send somebody and i was the youngest and most expendable member of the group so i was sent (laughs) and uh, that's how i did my first facilitation of what i'd now call a whole system or multi-stakeholder group because Mm. Peter and Vincent did something that nobody had ever done before, which is rather than do scenario work as an expert activity, just them and their colleagues from the university, they decided to invite um, into this activity people from across all parts of South African society, black and white, opposition and establishment, left and right, men, women, business, government, civil society, trade union. Uh, hmm. Academics. So that experience was my well, my first experience with um, what I've been doing ever since. And I ended up leaving Shell and immigrating to South Africa and starting to do that kind of work full time. And marrying the project coordinator, the usual story. Um, totally, the usual I, story. Absolutely. Yeah, happens yeah. to everybody. And yeah. uh, so that. That's how I got in to the to the current uh, yeah to what I'm doing now and and it's from there from that first experience that I became a full-time facilitator and learned my craft mostly in South Africa and then and in the 30 years since that was exactly 30 years ago.
0: so I, I've, I love I've really enjoyed listening to this book and I've been doing a whole bunch of chores at home while I've been doing it with my headphones on. I've cleaned out our entire shed and I've stacked the wood. And walked uh, the dog multiple times, so it's been a it's been a companion for me over the last you know week as we've been leading up to the pod. So I've really enjoyed it. And uh, and uh, and and so one of the questions I've got, which I think comes back to us meeting at an art of hosting, where I want to say that I played me and Julio down by the schoolyard, and you danced to it Yes,
1: with a spoon right? hitting a glass. With a spoon hitting Remember? a glass,
0: I do. I have a very clear memory of that. Yeah. And um, it was thoroughly enjoyable. And and, and so um, I was struck by one story you had uh, not from South Africa but from Colombia and 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 you talked about um uh, there was a I forgotten his name there was a particular man who came up
2: to you. Yeah. Yeah, I know the story you were and, talking.
0: To. And, right, and he talked about the difference between he gave you some feedback yeah. around the mystery. The mystery or the mystic, yep. right? And uh, and it really struck me because, you know, coming from the art of hosting world, I think, you know, having kind of like graduated through that, where I think there's a lot of emphasis on the mystery and less on the pragmatic and the removal of obstacles, you know, how much do you think that's influenced how kind of like well-received the work of Rios and your work has been in kind of the world of mainstream consulting, you know? And I think it's been definitely true for Tuesday and I, like where we've landed in our work is putting the very pragmatic at the center of it what is the work we have to do together and how are we going to organize together across our differences to get it done but i kept listening to the to the book and enjoying like how pragmatic and uh the descriptions of the work were and i was like oh there's a there was a there was a point at which you made a choice or there was just a choice made by the nature of your own emphasis and i was like and how much do you think that's had an influence on what has been i think incredibly successful take up of something that is a very radical approach to problem solving.
2: So let me answer the question and then tell you the story that, uh, or narrate the story that you're referring to and how I understand it. Um, I am by, by, I don't know, by disposition um, interested in practical things in the, in the book um Presence by Peter Senge and Otto Sharma and Joseph Tworski and Betty Sue Flowers. Uh, uh, the authors refer to me as a practical craftsman, which mm. I wouldn't have thought uh, I wouldn't have thought to call myself. But when I read it, I thought it was a a good description. Mm. So I'm actually not much interested at all in esoteric or mystical or spiritual matters. The example you, or the story you alluded to, is uh, four years ago in 2017, when I had already been facilitating uh, for almost 30 years, I had an experience that changed my idea about facilitation and that was the inspiration for this new book. And the experience took place in Colombia, the country of Colombia, one year after the signing of the peace accords that. Ended a 52-year civil war, and I've been, in, I've worked in Colombia, on and off for a long time, including facilitating among the armed actors during the height of the civil war. But this workshop was um, in the southwest of the country, a very troubled area, and the peace accords have been signed. The FARC guerrillas had demobilized at least the main body of them had demobilized and the question was okay now that we've agreed to stop killing each other how are we gonna move forward as a as a region and the group was typical of a rios group in that it included people from across the whole system which meant politicians from different parties uh uh, business people especially from the sugar industry which is big in that area and university uh, academics, and trade unionists, and um, indigenous people, and Afro columbians and philanthropists, and demobilized guerrillas, hmm. and so it was a vi- um, it was a big deal that they were all together uh, in the same room, uh, and there was a lot of the. No- well, there was a lot of hesitation and people didn't want any photographs taken because they didn't want it to be known who they were talking to. So it was an extraordinary meeting in one sense. But in another sense, if you took a video of the meeting, it would look very familiar to you. It would look like, I guess, many of the workshops you've facilitated, starting in a circle, uh, working in small groups, writing things on post-its, playing with uh, building things with Lego, Taking walks, eating meals together, telling personal stories, etc. So, it was not unusual from a facilitation point of view, and it was going quite well. And people were starting to relax and think that maybe they'd be able to do something together. And there was one man in the workshop who's very famous in Colombia. I'd met him before. His name is Francisco Duru, and he used yeah, to be the head better. of the Jesuits' order in Colombia. Yeah. And he is a famous peacemaker. He had done very brave things during the war, going to the jungle to hold conversations with guerrilla fighters. And one week before this workshop, he had been appointed by uh, Juan Manuel Santos, the president of Colombia, to be the president of this newly formed Commission for Truth, Reconciliation and Non-Repetition, which was one of the bodies for the implementation of the peace accords. Anyhow, I'd met him before, I have the highest admiration for him. And at the end of this first day of the workshop, he comes running up to me very excited. And he says, Adam, I see what you're doing. And I said, Pacho, Pacho is the diminutive of Francisco, Pacho, uh, Well, what am I doing? And he said, you're removing the obstacles to the expression of the mystery. Yeah, that's it. And I actually didn't really understand what he meant, except that he was telling me something that he thought was important. And we had dinner that night. His English is not very good, and my Spanish is worse. And by the end of the evening, I was no clearer than I had been, except that the mystery here is not an Agatha Christie mystery. It's uh, something that is fundamentally unknowable. Um, anyway, at the end of the dinner, I said to him, Pacho, uh, this thing you say I'm doing, I. Don't know that I'm doing it. And he, he just looked at me and said, Well, maybe that's for the best. Mm. So th- this was I a just very loved out- that.
0: I loved it that he said that even. Yeah. I just thought that was fantastic. I, when <laughs> I wrote
2: I'm so happy you're telling this story. It was one of the yeah. stories that really stuck out for me. No, it course. is the first story in the book, and it's important. And I want to say two things about it. Uh firstly, I have no idea what the mystery is. I suppose I suppose. Nobody does. That's why it's called a mystery. And I haven't, I'm no wiser than I was. um, And I'm not even, I haven't really tried to figure it out, even if there was such a thing. But what I thought was interesting in his sentence was this idea about removing obstacles to the expression of the mystery. And uh, this was interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, most people think that facilitation, Is about getting people to do things. Uh, When I give talks on facilitation, 100% of the time, people say, well, how do you get people to come together or open up or act or follow through on commitments? Even facilitators, when they're in the bar and let the guard down, talk about, you know, I just couldn't get them to do this or that. And what I realized is uh, I have zero success getting anybody to do anything, certainly in my role as a facilitator. Well, for that matter, <laughs> as a parent, as a boss, as a friend, I can't really get anybody to do anything. But I have experienced that when people are able to do what they really want, they are thrilled. So this idea that the key is removing obstacles to people doing what they need to do, uh, to me, it's a very important idea. And I, and so then to go further, um, I started to think, well, what are we removing obstacles to? And very quickly, I could see that actually everything we do in facilitation is about removing obstacles to connection, contribution, and equity. I think you could literally go through every single activity a facilitator does And I want to come back to how I'm using the word facilitator in a moment. And I think you could probably 90, if not a hundred percent of it could be classified as removing obstacles to connection, contribution, equity, just to fast forward. Um, later on in the book, I suggest that another way of saying these three words is removing obstacles to these fundamental drives that everybody or almost everybody has. Uh, to love power and justice it's just a fancier way of saying connection contribution and equity so so yes this this really was the inspiration for the book and the book is an elaboration of what are those obstacles how do you remove them and what practically do you do uh to that end
1: one of the things i wanted to ask you about was um and at the At the end of the book, you talk more about why you added that third drive to justice, right? Like, so you've written a book called Power and Love. You talked a lot about those two drives. Um, But toward the end of the book, you talk about adding this drive to justice. And so, my question is kind of twofold. So, I'll see if we can track them. One is that in this book, you speak more about your own. I, I was thinking about it when you said you can't force anyone to do anything. But in this book, you've talked more about your own place in the world and power and privilege as as a facilitator than I think you ever have in another book, or at least that I've read you talk about another book. And you added this justice piece, which if I'm understanding from what you wrote, kind of Tillich, the, the person who wrote the definitions of power and love that you used, also wrote about justice. But in the earlier book, you chose not to include that drive. And I'm really curious, what is the movement toward now putting that drive in and does it reflect any of your own reflections on power and privilege? And so that might not be a great formed question, but I just noticed that. And so wanted to ask you about it and give you a chance to speak in about it a little bit.
2: Yeah. So let me answer it in just one minute, but I do want to go back to what you said at the introduction that not all of the listeners are facilitators because Mm -hmm. one of the things I'm trying to do in this book or one of the things I've done in this book is to, uh, suggest a bigger definition of what a facilitator is. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. that I'm defining a facilitator as anybody who helps a group collaborate to uh, effect change. And the basic uh, uh, reason for the book is that I think the world needs more and better collaboration, and therefore the world needs more and better facilitation. Mm. And mm. so what I mean by facilitation is not just the funny person standing next to the flip chart stand or in the Zoom window, but all the activities uh, involved in helping a group collaborate to affect change, which may be 90% not in meetings. So that's one broadening of the definition. Right. And, yes. uh, and also, I'm not talking about facilitation as a job, but as a role that can be played by anybody, full-time, part-time, amateur, professional, leader, manager, team member, friend, coach, consultant. Uh, and the reason I think this is important is, and, and I'd love to get into this further in the conversation, I think that in more and more um roles in the world people need to be acting as facilitators rather than experts or bosses and whether that's in um in organizations or companies or communities or countries Uh, i don't know if you saw it but i but i have done three interviews in the past month of three people who i consider to be amazing facilitators they're all on the various website i'll I'll, yeah, I'll put the. Give me the link, and one. I of tried the, to
0: get the. I tried to get the uh, Christiana Figueres one afterwards because I couldn't tune into it. She's like one of my heroes. Yeah. Because I haven't like, haven't been able to hear it.
2: No, yeah. we don't have a recording of it, but we have a transcript, which is on our website, and that was exactly oh, the example I wanted to give. Maybe we can come back to some of the others later, but uh, uh, what she says, uh, Christiana Figueres was the executive secretary of the UNFCCC for six cops, including the Paris cop. Uh, And the way she describes her role is exactly as a facilitator. And by the way, the way she describes how she did it is amazing and quite the opposite of how most people imagine that role needs to be played. So it is a stunning example of facilitation at the largest scale. and I would argue, you know, one of the greatest accomplishments of facilitation in the history of humanity. Great.
0: Agreed. Agreed. So,
2: and, and there was another interview of Juan Manuel Santos, which was interesting for, for other reasons. So um, I just want to say that I'm a defining facilitator, uh, not as the person standing beside the flip chart, but anybody who helps a group of people collaborate to affect change. And I'm guessing that, Applies to more of your listeners than just the people who self-identify as professional facilitators. Now, to answer your question, there was both an intellectual reason and a political reason, if I can put it that way. You're right that I have um, uh, written before about power and love, and that uh, that idea and that book arose from having read this sentence in a speech of Martin Luther King Jr., one of the final speeches he gave before he was assassinated, where he said, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. And sometimes you just read something that seems very important, much the way when Pachodoro said the sentence he said to me, I didn't understand what he meant, but I had a hunch it was really important. And... Um, so I thought this King sentence was very important and not not um, in the abstract, but that it seemed to me it explained a lot of what I was encountering as a facilitator, that many people get into this line of work because they're concerned about power without love, you know, people doing what they think they need to do without regard for others, steamrolling up over them, and it's reckless and abusive at best, and at worst genocidal, but Mm. the other side of it struck me as even more interesting, love without power, this idea that it's all about, that all you need is love and that connection uh, in a way that ignores power or thinks power is a bad thing, is sentimental and anemic at best, and at worst cynically reproducing of the status quo. And actually when I wrote the book Power and Love I was more concerned about love without power being sentimental and anemic because I see as I'm sure you've heard me say before an important tendency in the facilitation world uh, uh, that runs that risk yeah. um, and this is a big concern I've had about about our field and so um, that comes that is that, that idea is developed further in the part of the book that turn, talks about vertical facilitation mm-hmm. and horizontal facilitation, and that we can't choose between them. But uh, so when I was trying to understand, or when I was yeah, trying to unpack that King quote, I wanted to make sure I understood what he was saying, because I didn't want to <laughs> write a whole book based on a misunderstanding. Uh, and I found that Tillich, uh, tele- uh, sorry, that King had written his doctoral dissertation on the work of a German American Protestant existential theologian named Paul Tillich who I'd never heard of although he's very well known and uh, and that King's statement makes sense uh, especially if you understand the definitions Tillich is giving and I started have been using Tillich's definitions not because I'm really into... German-American Protestant existential theology. I'd have to say it's not really my my thing. Not uh, your bag. Not my bag. But because his <laughs> definitions uh, explain, you know, almost everything about what I deal with in my work. They're a practical value. Yeah. Um, and anyway, we can go more into that if you want. But the Tillich book, uh, where he gives these definitions... Uh, is called Power, Love, and Justice. And so I had this intellectual sense that even though the chapter on justice is almost, uh, I couldn't understand it, it's it's a very abstract theological argument, I already always had this sense that I was probably missing something and just focusing on power and love. Uh, And I I once said to my publisher, Steve Persante, you know, I've written about love. I've written about power. I'm thinking of writing this next book on justice. And he said, uh, that's okay. I think, I think I can wait a little while. Don't, no rush on that book. Anyhow, so I put it aside. <laughs> um, but uh, so that's the intellectual part of it. But this, this sense that my understanding, my my model, my, my way of making sense of the world was incomplete, this nagging sense of it uh, that I put aside. Uh, and as you, you're exactly right, Tuesday, uh, and as I was writing in, uh, tw- in 2019, 2020, um, with more uh, understanding of my own privilege uh, and blind spots and with uh, Black Lives Matter and and analogous uh, prominent uh, movements in Canada, including around in, Indigenous issues, um, I thought I, I I I began to see that there was a way to bring justice into the uh, into my understanding, and that it really I won't say it's the end of the story, but it really it really f- uh, fleshes out the model I was using to talk not just about contribution and connection, but equitable contribution and connection. And in all of this, I mean, the reason I write these books, the the book is not about a new kind of facilitation, uh, not at all, but it is a new way of understanding what I think all or almost all great facilitators do. So what I'm really doing in this book, like all my others, is just offering a new language. Um, and that's a very practical thing to offer yeah. a new language. And, for example, I believe that uh, think, thinking about contribution, connection, equity, thinking about uh, power, love, and justice, uh, focuses a, a facilitator on pretty well all of the important issues. If you're paying attention to those three things, you're paying attention to almost anything, almost everything that matters. So in that sense, it's a super practical thing. Just It's just... Introducing three words, and similarly, the other vocabulary introduced is this vertical and horizontal, which we can get to later. Mm -hmm. So so that's what I'm doing, yeah. Uh,
1: I just wanted to say how it's, for me it's really great to see someone, I mean, books aren't real time, right? Like obviously you read it some time ago, but it's great to see someone evolve and learn over. It's just like, I think that's such a generous gift or offering to the facilitation field, right? Because that's another place. I mean, you talk a lot about how if we want to enact things, things in the world, facilitators have to have them internally. I have more questions about that. But one of the things you're doing is like showing expertise and showing learning and evolution. And I just think there's something that's quite generous about that. When someone has kind of your stature and status in the field to actually be quite
2: explicit
1: about that learning.
2: So that's very intentional. All of my books have that character and there's a couple of aspects to it. First of all, that is how I learn. Almost everything I've learned has been by making mistakes in Mm. the sense that I think things are one way, I I think things are like this, and I do something based on that understanding, and it doesn't work, and I hit a wall, and I fall down, and I eventually, after five minutes or five months, I pick myself up, and I say, what happened here? What was I missing? So that is very much my learning process, and the way I write uh, uh, through telling stories, the stories I have to tell, almost all of them are about such learning processes. But the other thing I'm trying to do is to, well, give permissions the wrong way, but show. I, I don't think it's possible to do this work and get it right all the time or even mm-hmm. most of the time. When I listen to people talk about things as if they're straightforward and they never make mistakes, I either think th- this person is is really at another level than me just so much like I can't even figure out how they do it or they're lying. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I I mean, I often want to ask people, is it really like that for you? Because Mm. it's really not like that for me. And I recognize that part of my privilege, maybe I'm given a little more room to, to fail uh, than other people. So uh, I'm I'm not saying we can just screw up over and over and, (laughs) and keep being given permission to do it so i'm aware of that aspect and i want to i want to show that because this this is how i think about it that the that really the only way to learn this stuff is to practice and fail and practice and the, some of the biggest Mess ups are still after 30 years, the final story in the book, which is the story about the work in Manitoba, which is a very important story for me, which was of a huge screw up and what I learned from that. And that's after 30 years. So I'm trying to tell facilitators, don't be so hard on yourself if, you know, somebody isn't happy with (laughs) with some module (laughs) or it doesn't go as you expected or the project crashes and burns because Mm -hmm. um, that's, I think, intrinsic to the work of collaboration. If you're just trying to manipulate people, you or boss them about, then you can probably get it right every time. But if you're trying to do collaboration, uh, then there's going to be lots and lots and lots and lots of times like that. So get used to it. Mm. I love
0: it. I feel like I grew up, like, as I grew into this field, I felt like I was handed, um, like reams and reams of reams of very esoterical ways to describe something right? That like when I tried to tell people about what I did, whether it be my family or, or old mates of mine I've known since I were kids, they were literally like, what are you talking about? It sounds like you've joined a cult of some kind. Do we need to do an intervention? You know, um, literally my mate Gary said that to me one time when I came back, he runs a pub in the UK and he was like, is everything okay? And, uh, and, and, and so I feel like one of the most generous things about this book actually is the provision of language is the provision of an articulation that explains something that in many ways is highly felt is very artistic in its ability to duck and weave and respond to reality as it changes like the skill it's not like a technical skill you're talking about you know it's, it, it and so and so i think that the the language you use just provides something very practical and pragmatic to work with so i just i, I just really want to echo that that there's i think this is incredibly useful that way and I want to pick up on what you were saying about facilitation is just more needed in society. It's just more needed now. And so equipping people with this language who are facilitators out there, I think is incredibly useful. And, and choose and I, we have a kind of a, an ongoing challenge around how we build people's capacity right to become increasingly mature and increasingly skilled facilitators you know and you've got this lovely line in the book which is like pay attention the rest is imper- the rest is interpretation go and practice you know and uh, and I love that and that absolutely holds true from my own life the only way I've got better is by going to do it but I just wonder if one you could speak about that core practice of paying attention because you you talk about that a lot in the book and And uh, it just feels essential to me. But then two, like how, what's been your experience as a uh, a leader in Rios, uh, a man who's mentored individuals, someone who's worked in contexts where you've built capacity? How have you had success in building capacity? Right. So obviously there's the, what's the core practice? Talk about that, paying attention. And how have you had success in raising people's game, accelerating their ability to do this work?
2: Okay. So I'm, I'm always, I know I keep saying I want to go back a step, but I do, uh, because the book has two audiences. Um, because I think that the world needs more and better collaboration and therefore more and better facilitation, part of the languaging is just to say, this can be done. It is possible. Uh, here's a book that gives a hundred examples of where it's been done. And if they can do it during the Civil War in Colombia, then maybe you can do it between the yes. people on 15th Street and 16th Street. It's possible. Right. It's not straightforward. Right. It's not easy. It's not guaranteed, but it is possible. And so, in that sense, the second audience is the clients of facilitators or the the sponsors of change agents. And uh, yeah, so because I think the default mode in the world. Uh, generalizing is not helping people collaborate to affect change, but trying to force things to change, trying to boss people about using authority or or charisma or votes or money or guns. And I'm trying to strengthen the collaboration options so that we don't keep defaulting to the forcing option. So that's another purpose for the book now the book offers a framework for understanding facilitation not not a series of agendas or or modules but a an abstract framework that says that there's 10 moves only 10 and when you can do these then you can do anything and I don't know whether it's really 10, maybe it's 12, maybe it's 14, maybe it's eight, but it's not a thousand. And the, the middle of the book is to describe these 10 moves, uh, five vertical, five horizontal. So the good news is there's only 10 moves. The bad news is I can't tell you when to use them or in what proportion or what order. It's like if I came into your kitchen and I put on the counter some flour, some sugar, some eggs, some chocolate, some cayenne pepper, some beef, some orange juice. And I said, you can pretty well make anything you want out of these ingredients. If you're a lousy cook like me, you would just look at it and you wouldn't have a clue what to do. But if you're a good, experienced cook, you'd say, oh, okay, cool. Thanks for that. Yeah, I can make the next Mm. you know, 30 meals out of this stuff. Um, So, so what's the equivalent of being a good cook? What I argue is it is uh, paying attention. And this is related to words like presence. uh, And maybe uh, to other more subtle or esoteric ideas. I don't know, that's a bit above my pay grade. But I mean something very ordinary. I mean not getting distracted. I mean not getting dis- and how do you get distracted? Well right. you get distracted because you're worrying whether the client likes you or about whether the workshop's going to be a success, or what's going on in the news that's affecting the work of the team or this other project that you were working on that you got a difficult email about five minutes before you entered the meeting, or that you're jet lagged, or you didn't sleep well, or one of the participants reminds you of your mother. I mean, these are all distractions, very common kind of distractions. And Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is you've got 10 moves. There's no um, predictable order or uh, when to use what. And the only way to know what to do next, which in life and in facilitation, all that matters is what are you gonna do next? The only way to know what to do next uh, is to pay attention, not be distracted, not be thinking about this, this Kahane book and what was it that he said on page 15 again, no. It's what's <laughs> happening now uh, in the context, in the group, in yourself, and what move do you need to make next. Now, right. as for how to learn that, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't. I. The only way I know how to learn that is by practicing. And in that sense, right. I don't. I don't. If it's possible to accelerate it, um, I haven't discovered how. I mean, the framework helps. Frameworks help. Right. Um, and I'm hoping this framework will be useful to beginning as well as advanced facilitators. But, if I take the Rios experience which you you reminded me about um I don't know any substitute for yeah uh ten years of practice, and yeah. I don't know anybody uh, who can who can do this in two or three years so yeah i I do believe it's about it's about practice and learning. Oh, okay. That's, there's that thing happening. Yeah, I know when that happens, I need to, I need to make this move. And when the other thing happens, I need to make that move. And gradually, like in any kind of practice, you build up a, what is it called? Unconscious competence that you just move Mm. as you need to, um, given Mm. the situation as it's unfolding. So the, but many facilitators, including me when I started out, think it's all a matter of technique. I remember one of my important facilitation teachers when I first got to South Africa was a man named Louis van der Merwe, a very gifted facilitator. And we used to work at his home uh, near Johannesburg. And he had, in his private office, he had this set of uh, books. It was an annual publication by Pfeiffer and Company of facilitation methods. And it had been coming up for years. And so he had a whole shelf of these book of methods. And I kept asking him, can't you lend it to me? Uh, You know, I really want to learn these methods. And eventually he said, okay, if you insist, here they are. He took them out of his office, dumped them on the kitchen table and said, you can read them if you want, but they're not really going to help you. And he was exactly right. Didn't help at all. And I actually use very few methods, maybe one new one a year that somebody teaches me, but that's not... I mean, maybe you need to learn some of that at the beginning, but that's not the crucial thing. The crucial thing is to pay attention, practice, and and discern what you need to do next, which ingredient you need to use next.
1: Well, Adam, one of the things you also say, and this goes to, I mean, I think you make the larger point at the beginning, around like our work is not necessarily to apply pressure, but to remove obstacles. But then later, as you go into the book, you talk about the facilitator needing to remove obstacles within themselves, right? So it's not just something you're doing, acting on to remove removing the world, but you're removing them from yourself. And one of the things you say really clearly, and I got really curious to ask you about, was around, um, you just use the example of removing obstacles to love inside yourself, which kind of reminds me of that Rumi quote about not, you know, your task is not to seek... Not to seek love, but to seek and find all the barriers to love inside of yourself, right? And so I was curious, in your very practical, pragmatic way, how do you go about removing obstacles to love inside yourself? And it's okay if you don't have an answer, but that was like, I read that and I was like, oh, I got to ask Adam. I got to ask Adam how he begins to remove obstacles to love inside himself. Because that, for me, feels like a key A key strategy, if we want to actually want to make an equitable world.
2: Mm. Um, well, I mean, for me, the fundamental point here is that because you can't get anybody to do anything, certainly not in the role of a facilitator, which by definition is not about forcing, but enabling. It follows logically that the o- literally the only tool you have is what you yourself will do. So that's for me the big point, mm-hmm. which is that the only thing that matters, the only thing worth thinking about, is what am I going to do next? If the situation is not the way I want it to be in the world, in the group, then what am I? What am I myself going to do next? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the big idea, and. This whole thing about power, love, and justice doesn't make much sense unless you know the definitions I'm using because the I have deliberately chosen ordinary words, but the downside of that is all of these ordinary words have many meanings, and so it's possible to have a um a very confusing conversation by uh so and here's where I use the Tillich definitions. he defines power as the drive of everything living to realize itself so it's about me becoming who i am and growing and achieving my ambition doing my job however you put it in in other words an entirely it's about power too and and yes it can be used in a degenerative way as power over that's power without love but when people say to me i really wish we didn't have to use power here or I don't think power is a good thing or power is a problem here. um, That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, Jim Gimian, our, our colleague from, from Nova Scotia said to me once, Adam, don't you realize that literally nothing happens without power? Mm -hmm. So that's important. Tillich defines love as the drive, the drive to reunite the separated. So again, that's not romantic love not falling down love. Love without power is I love you, I can't live without you. Um, Love that denies power or that suffocates power. But the generative side of love is is reuniting the separated. And so what does that mean for a person? It means not making connection, but reestablishing a connection Mm -hmm. which is there and which has been obscured whether that's my connection to other people to the commu- to my community to mother earth to my mm. own self to god whatever mm-hmm. uh, and the, what's the opposite or what is what is blocked love look like it's it's where there are structures in place within myself or in the organization or in the society structures that block um, me connecting to other people or to other parts of the organization or to the community or or to myself. So, um, yeah, I mean, what's a simple example? Zoom in some ways enables connection because now we can have this conversation without having to use a lot of money and carbon and time. Uh, and at the same time, it's a bit flat. And so it's a structure that in some ways is enabling, and in some ways is blocking connection. So again, I I don't necessarily mean it in an esoteric way, and I'm curious. I don't know that Rumi quote. I'd love to to read it, but what I'm saying uh, is that if the facilitator can't has difficulty connecting, if the <laughs> facilitator has difficulty realizing themselves and using their own power if the facilitator isn't paying attention to or is blind to questions of equity or justice then the facilitator won't be able won't be able to recognize these or work with them in the group or in the system i worked uh, for many years my business partner was bill o'brien the former chief executive of hanover insurance and Bill said, and he's quoted many times, the success of the intervention. I was just writing down this quote,
0: literally. I was just like, oh, yeah. yeah." He says
2: the the success of the intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. Right. And it's true he said that, and it's true Bill was a very religious person and a spiritual person, but he was a very anti-esoteric person. (laughs) He Mm. used to criticize us in our organization all the time for doing these highfalutin things when what people needed was something more basic and what he meant and he's written about this in a posthumous book called character in the corporation is uh above all an attitude of service that's what he meant uh and he got i remember him getting very angry at a client because he told me once this client this senior executive wants to be served rather than serve Mm. but he didn't mean uh and so so i just think all of these things so easily flow into the mystical and that's not necessary he used to tell me all the time to read c.s lewis partly because (laughs) c.s lewis is a great christian writer right yeah Uh, but but also because c.s lewis is about this uh, has about the best character the best ability to say things simply as anybody in the history of the english Mm. language i mean he can Mm. he can give esoteric theological concepts in you know sports metaphors and so (laughs) so i do i worry and i'm coming back to what you said uh uh, i i think it's a failing of the field that we make things more complicated than they than they need to be or that they're that they should usefully be
0: yeah i love it it's really interesting Thank you. And uh, there's a, Mike, Mike, we listen to all the Narnia books and stuff. We drive down. I've got grandparents. My wife's parents live down in the States. We do this long drive from Canada down and we've listened to all the Narnia books. And the kids were so disappointed with the ending. You know, they were just like, "What? Well, they all die and they go to heaven. And that's like the awesome outcome. They're like, what is? And then Susan's left on her own they're like this is terrible who wrote this book you know but they loved it up to that point and, and it just struck me that and then I, I think it's you who said this quote I, I, or at least I quote you as saying it which is that um from one of your books which is that a wound wants to heal you know I, I don't know whether it was you that yeah, said it or whether yeah. you said it in a, in a speech at some point that I got to yeah. witness but like it, I think a lot of what you're saying is speaking to that to me you know and that and the, and then the role of the facilitator is really doing your best to create the conditions for the wound to heal. You know, that's a lot of the work. Yeah. And, and, and something that uh, I've just been thinking about listening to the book is, is, is on this kind of like element of conditions. And, and I couldn't tell from reading your book um, just like how much you go into a situation and assess the readiness for the scale and complexity of the level of collaboration that you're trying to create and then decide whether or not you'll do it and how much you will actually work to create those conditions, you know, mm. and, and and if I think about even, even if a condition is dissatisfaction with the current state, you know, like how much work is there to make visible the need so people can then rise to it? Or how much is it just a question of assessing where it's at and saying, this is a good time for the scale and complexity of what we bring. I'm just, uh, yeah, and right, I know so. that's, a, and it's a big part of the vertical work, I think, because uh, we do a lot of kind of front end engaged vertically as well. On Anyway, so what does that provoke yeah. for you?
2: So again, I'm going to back up. So um, um, I think what you're referring to with your reference to the wound is, I tried to think of uh, metaphors to explain power and love, and, the best metaphor I found for power is a seed. The seed, uh, the drive of everything living—in this case, a seed—to realize itself. It's like those guerrilla gardeners that put seeds into vacant lots, knowing mm. that the the power drive of the seed will—it wants to grow and will—and will create life uh, in that in that abandoned lot, and the. The wound story is one that I think is very helpful. Uh, um, it was a woman named Laura Chason in Boston who told me the story that her husband had been swimming in the lake and had been run over by a motorboat, which had cut Ooh. a very deep gash in his uh, thigh. And they rushed him to the hospital and the surgeon said, I've cleaned the wound, but I can't really do, uh, I can't, it's much too big to to repair or to stitch up. Uh, What you need to do is to keep it clean. The two sides of the wound want to be whole. Hmm. And and that's Mm -hmm. uh, a, a metaphor or an analogy for this, the drive to reunite the separated and this is my experience uh, in situations like the Colombian one I mentioned at the beginning of our call. If you can create a clean, if you will, uh, space for these actors who have been estranged, or in that case literally shooting at each other, uh, they, maybe not everybody, but most people are just overjoyed with the potential to reconnect and to find mm. those people who I thought were my enemy. Maybe I disagree with them. Maybe they're my opponents, but, but we are part of something larger and we can do something together. Um, and that's the, yeah, that's the, that's what collaboration is about. That's what moving forward together is about. So to answer your question, uh, this thing for me about assessment is uh, is tricky. Uh, I don't think I have any capacity, again, to get people to be dissatisfied, or I don't spend any energy on getting people ready. Mm. Uh, my attention is more on are people dissatisfied with the situation and are there enough people dissatisfied with the situation? Maybe for different reasons. These are problematic situations, not the different actors view as problematic for different reasons, not problems that everybody sees the same way. So I am interested in, are people dissatisfied and want, and and have they already concluded that they can't fix it by themselves and therefore interested in, working with others, including perhaps people they don't agree with or like or trust, because they've already realized that they it's better to try that than to sit in their office with their colleagues and try to fix things on their own. And yet, um, I don't think it's possible to calculate this before you start. You may think they're ready and then you start and it doesn't really work because of this or that. Or you may think they couldn't I've had the contrary experience where I think, no, this conditions aren't here, but they are, and things Mm. move and things happen. So I am, I, the thing I pay attention to more than anything is, are there people who have the will and the capacity to try to change things? And do they want some help? And that's really all, all I need. Great. Thank you. That's it.
1: That's great, Adam. And I, um, I feel like you teased a little bit, so we're we're at about the time to go, so I want to wrap us up, but I feel like you teased a little bit about this Manitoba story, and I would say two things. One is that it's in the book, so if folks want to get details about it, they should certainly read the book, because I loved it. I felt like I was just cheering at some of the things you said around, like, you know, it's not about trying to methodologies. It's actually about like being right there with what's happening. It's not about necessarily forcing trust, but becoming even more trustworthy. Like there was just so many nuggets in there um, that I thought were quite useful. And I guess I just want to offer, because you had said, maybe we'll get back to it. If there's anything you want to say about that story um, before we kind of close ourselves up today. Yeah.
2: So it is a, a long story that I won't try to summarize. It deals with work. That my colleagues and I were doing in Manitoba with First Nations, and it could logically have fit in many places in the book, but I wanted it to be at the end. It's the final story before the conclusion, because I think it makes the the it's the most challenging chapter for facilitators. And I'll give you the punchline, and you can read the story to see how I get there. But the punchline is it is not adequate for the facilitator or the change maker to stand outside as the white coated curer mm-hmm. the facilitator also not instead but also has to stand inside as the wounded healer and that is a that is very challenging for all consultants and facilitators and change agents who would prefer to think of themselves as outside it's your problem but if you pay me i'll help you it doesn't have much to do with me but uh but i'll try to be helpful and it challenges that fund um yeah it, it offers what i consider to be a a fundamental challenge to that positioning of the facilitator
1: well it's interesting that you say that talking to two people who run an organization called the outside adam uh i assume that <laughs>
2: Completely that by mean.
0: accident. Brilliant. Well, just like thank you for taking the time to come on and and spend some time with us on this podcast, but also with the listeners we have. We have this ridiculous pleasure of turning up in their ears once every two weeks. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for writing the book and uh, and looking forward to staying in connection and contact. And And maybe as a last question, is there anyone else that you think we should be talking to? and bringing onto the podcast that choose and I would, it would be a, it would be a a, a gift to us, but also a gift to the listeners to tune into.
2: Well, there's so many people doing amazing work in the world. Um, um, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of time for, uh, I'm gonna mispronounce her first name, but Marie Brown. Oh uh, yeah, uh, who's written several amazing books on facilitation and change in the last few mm-hmm. years? Really, a, a, a genius entrant into the field. Sorry, I can't remember what the Adrian. Adrian, sorry. Um, if you want uh, somebody in the more uh, cantankerous vein, uh, I'd suggest <laughs> you interview. Uh, Jim Gimian, our mutual friend, mm. who would have a nice. lot to say about all of these matters. Love it! Great,
1: thank you, Adam. And thank what you we'll do so to is we'll like that we'll link your book in the show notes. We'll link those interviews that you mentioned, right? Uh, that you've done recently on the Rios website. We'll link the website, and we'll also um, have a link to the song so folks can get some sense of of what you're up to and what you're about. And just thank you so so much for joining us. It's been great to have you.
2: My pleasure. Mm-hmm
1: great well we hope you enjoyed this episode with adam today it was really great for us to talk with him about his new book facilitating breakthrough it was great just to have this man who's been in our orbit and impacting our thinking and our practice for years on um and so make sure as you as we leave this podcast today please go to our uh, spotify playlist to hear a song mm-hmm. that we mentioned at the songs we mentioned all the time we can't play them anymore but you can still find them there and you can go to our website wait yeah Why would they go to our website, Tim?
0: Tell people. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of juicy stuff on our website. But if you want to go to the website for the podcast, there's some amazing (laughs) things. So, all the show notes, all the resources, everything is up there from the content that we work through, which I think is really great. Because often in the website, in the podcast, sorry, we're referencing kind of other books or materials. And so you can go find there. So, Jen, who works with us, does a grand job of just like pulling that all together. So, you can go dive into further content and get down various internet wormholes of brilliance to uh, kind of grow yourself and grow your own practice. So, definitely. Definitely go check that out. Good to have you with us folks.
1: Thank you everyone.
0: Bye-bye. Bye bye.